the mystery of godliness. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed sorry, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All right. Well, we are continuing on in 1 Timothy here and moving right along. Tonight, we come to one of the key passages in this whole letter. It's really the foundation for the series. We we named the series from this verse, uh, the household of God. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and he says here, he's writing this letter so that if he delays, Timothy might know and be able to teach how somebody should behave in the household of God. We've looked through the last several weeks now at at some of the ways Paul lays out as how we are to behave in the household of God. First few chapters have gone through that. Tonight's passage is a little bit different. Last week, you know, we looked at the, the formation and development of deacons. Before that was elders, more structural stuff. Tonight, it's almost like Paul takes a pause for a second. Like he hits the pause button. This is really, I think, the heart and soul of this letter, this, this personal letter that Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. Let's take a look at this. Jump in here. Paul says he's intending on coming to see him. He's intending on joining him, presumably in Ephesus. But in the meantime, a letter is going to have to do. So he writes him a letter. He gives instruction on what he wants Timothy to do. Paul, already we've looked at, he's dealt with false teachers. He's clarified what the gospel is and how it works. He's taught on prayer. There's been teaching on proper gender distinctions and different roles in the church, elders, deacons, different ways of serving. That's what Paul has covered so far. And it anchors here on this passage that we have tonight. And then really this passage becomes the driving force for everything that we're going to look at in the rest of this book. This passage, the way I read this, it's almost like Paul is going through all these details. He's describing the church. He's talking about how the church is supposed to function. And something in that provokes him, This it, it stirs up this worship. It's almost like he stops himself and he breaks into what we probably is like a first century hymn. It's like this little reprieve, this little break. To me, it feels like as he's writing this letter, He's thinking about the glories of the church, properly structured, healthily functioning, living as a community of disciples. Something in that provokes him to worship, and he breaks into this song. 
Paul says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Honestly, that one line is probably enough for tonight. (laughs) That's what the church is. The church is the household of God. We're a family. That's what the church is. We have each been adopted in to the household of God, the family of God. We've been, with that adoption comes all the rights and the responsibilities of a family. There's a proper way you ought to behave now that you're in the family. That's what Paul's saying here. Now that you're in this household, there's a proper way. When we think of, as we think of ourselves as a household, it's really important to think of what that actually means. What does that actually imply in the way that we treat each other? One of the key things about a household is you don't get to choose necessarily who's in your household. You can't just choose your brothers and sisters. You can't You don't get the luxury of disassociating with the crazy aunt or uncle. They're in your family. They're a part of your family. And by the Spirit, as we become members of the church, members of God's new household, we each relate to him as our father. We can now come boldly before the throne. We can come to God and cry out, Abba, Father, which means Daddy God. He is now, we can, we can approach him as our Father. And that means that our fellow believers, look around you, these are brothers and sisters. That's not just like a cliche way of referring to each other. You are adopted into a new household. This is one giant family. One extended family. And as God's children, that implies that we all have equal dignity before him. There's not a favorite child, so to speak. So, and as siblings, as brothers and sisters, members of a household, There's implications there. We are to love one another. We are to bear one each other's burdens, one another's burdens. We are to support one another. There are several, you just look up that phrase in the New Testament, one another. There are lots of ways in which we relate to one another now that we can call each other brother and sister in this household. Paul goes on, he says, this household of God, which is the church of the living God, this household that you are a part of, it's the church of the living God. That literally means this this is the assembly, the gathering of the people of the living God. 
You are the assembled community of the living God. This is a huge statement. This isn't like some dead poet society, you guys. We are not a group of people rallied around a common politic or philosophy. We're not a a group of people gathered for some sort of a rally. This is not a temple with a lifeless statue. You, as the assembly, when we come together, we are the church of the living God. This is the church, the called out assembly of the living God. Our God is alive and active. He is working, and in a very unique way, he is active in our assembly, in our gathering. This is why it's so important for us that we gather. The church is to be a vivid picture of the presence of the living God in our assembly. This is what should characterize characterize our assembly. The church today, 2 Corinthians 6, says we are the temple of the living God. That's we collectively. Ephesians 2, we are a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God lives. He's alive and active in our assembly. So when we come together as the assembled body, this is easier for us to see. And throughout the week, as you scatter, it's a little bit harder to see. That's why it's important when we come together, because every aspect of our common life together, it enriches and it challenges and it provokes us to grow as disciples of Jesus. So when we come together, it shows, it reveals the presence of God, and it provokes us to live more in his light. In our worship, when we bow down, we are bowing down to a living God, not a distant philosophy or an abstract theory. It's the living God. When we read and we teach the scriptures, we're hearing God's voice. He speaks in a unique way. The presence empowers, Holy Spirit empowers that. When we meet him at the table for communion every week, he makes himself known to us in a real way. In our fellowship with one another, as we're going to eat pizza and hang out tonight, we get a picture of the living God. And through that, our witness, this picture of the living God becomes even more clear and pronounced as we live in community. The very point of that, 1 Corinthians 14, is that unbelievers would see our gathering and they would declare, God is really among you. which is a challenging thing. If an unbeliever walks into our gathering, do they proclaim, do they acknowledge God's there? God is among this group. The living God is there.
Paul goes on. Says the church, the assembly of the living God, is a pillar and a buttress of truth. This assembly of the living God, this household that we're a part of, we're to be, Paul says, a pillar and a buttress or a foundation of truth. On first pass, it almost feels like those are two of the same things. We're just talking about a foundation here, a pillar and a foundation, both of which serve the purpose, essentially, of holding up a building. But in this context, the pillar is something different than just a foundation. The purpose of a pillar is not only to hold the roof up, but it is to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. The inhabitants of Ephesus, where Paul is writing this to Timothy, they would have a clear picture in mind with this word pillar. We've talked about several times now, there was the temple uh, to Diana in Ephesus. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's hundred of these pillars throughout this temple, 18 meters high. These pillars, hundred of them. And on top of that was this massive structure, this shining marble roof. Just like that, those pillars that are holding that shining marble roof up, you, we, us, as the church, holds the truth up so that it can be seen and admired and acknowledged by the world. So just as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, They're not the point. So the church's function is not necessarily to advertise itself, but to put the truth, the gospel, on display. So I think here that Paul has his double responsibility. As a foundation, we as the church, we hold firm so that we don't collapse under the weight of false teachings and heresies. We hold firm to the gospel and the truth. And yet at the same time, as a pillar, we hold high the gospel proclamation so that the world can see it, so that it's not hidden but put on display. Is this balance of holding firm in defense and confirmation of the gospel and yet a bold proclamation of the gospel. The church is called to both sides of that. It's a pillar and a buttress of truth. This last week I've been thinking a lot about two, two men from history, um, one of which is He's been a, I've read several of his works. Leslie Newbegin. And in his effort to try to convince the church to live as missionaries, 
in a lost country, he said that we need to be telling a true and better story, a more compelling story. He said this, and I thought it was really good. In our contemporary culture, two quite different stories are told. One is a story of evolution, of development of species through the survival of the strong, a story of the rise of civilizations, of our type of civilization and its success in giving humankind mastery over nature. And the other story is the one embodied in the Bible, the story of creation and fall, of God's election of a people to be the bearers of his purpose for humankind, and of the coming of the one in whom that purpose would be fulfilled. These are two different, incompatible stories. And for Newbegin, the church is to offer a more compelling story. We have the true and better story of what is going on and how to make sense of what is, what is happening in our culture. The church is to offer and see itself as a credible alternative. Another story is presented and offered in Scripture. And our place in this story is to embody the end and to invite, this is what he says, embody the end and invite others to join that story. Second person I've been thinking about, I flew down to Southern California and back this last week, and I just revisited, reread Bonhoeffer's Life Together, um, which if you have not read, gosh, it's so good. I highly recommend you pick it up. I think it's really amazing and very relevant for this cultural moment where we're at right now. Bonhoeffer, if you're unfamiliar with the story, sort of in the throes of Nazism as the church is, church in Germany is, is giving in to the pressures of the Nazi regime, giving in to, consumed and giving in to the prevailing ideas. Bonhoeffer takes this group and he starts essentially this like underground seminary out in the country. Life together is that story that how they did life together in this seminary. One of the things that Bonhoeffer, I think, does is he, he presents this picture of a church, the church, as a unique community that lives in a unique way even when all of culture is going the other way. It's a counterculture community that's grounded and secured in the truth of Scripture and that puts on display the better narrative. Paul said, we're not to be conformed. Paul goes on. It says, great is this mystery of godliness. I actually really like the old King James for this verse. It's probably just because that's how I remember it. 
King James has, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's a little bit more catchy, maybe. Paul says, this mystery is great. When we hear this word mystery, which is probably poignant for it being Halloween, I think this time of year especially, we, we think of like unsolved mysteries. Is it just me? When I hear mystery, my mind immediately goes to like unsolved mysteries or like murder mysteries, those sort of things. Am I alone? Anybody else? Yeah? Okay. We think of mystery essentially as something that can't be known. Something that there's no explanation for. No reasoned explanation. Something that we can't understand or you probably never will. That's actually not that far off from the way most of the culture in Paul's day thought of the word mystery. But there's a twist. For Paul, and in most of the like popular religions and cults that were prevalent, the, the prevailing philosophy of the day, the idea of mystery was not just something that you couldn't understand. It was something that most people couldn't understand or that they didn't understand, but some could. Although, of course, they, they would then keep it a secret. Mysteries of this sort were only to be revealed to your inner circle they're not to be proclaimed uh, and only would be revealed to those who were then brought into this cult or this philosophy or whatever it was. There was like a secret code. It was this, it was a whole thing. Some of these mysteries came with secret formulas, magic verses different ways of thinking, different ways of reading the genealogies, different ways of reading things. This is why Paul, in chapter 1 of this letter, he, he focused on this pretty heavily. Let's, let's look at 1 Timothy 1 real quick just to see some of this. 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse, verse 3, the beginning of the letter, Paul says, I urge you, I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God. Paul's confronting that exact thing, myths and endless genealogies, some sort of secret knowledge or mystery that you have to figure it out and unlock and then you can be a part of the church. The Paul said, no, that's not how this works. But what's fascinating then is that Paul does say, but if you want a mystery, if you want a mystery, you don't have to go far. Here it is. You want hidden knowledge, Secrets of the universe, formula that'll change your life. Here it is. The mystery is now revealed. It's plain. 
It's a formula. It's six verses, six lines in a poem. It's a song that Paul gives us. It's not just one mystery amongst others. This is the true and better story. Quote Leslie Newbegin. This is the story of all stories. This is the mystery. It's not a secret, it's a story. Not just any old story, this is the true story, the better story. The story of God who became human and took on flesh and who now rules the whole universe sitting at the right hand of his Father and who will once again come again. He will come again. This mystery won't lead you into some sort of secret, private, individualized religion. But it will change your life and it will provoke you and push you into a new way of life, a new way of discipleship, a new way of service, a new way of faith, a new hope. Paul says, great is this mystery of godliness. What does he do? He gives us a poem or possibly a song or a section of a song. It's a six-line poem that was probably a hymn from the early church. This is a window into something that they probably sang. At a minimum, this is the bedrock for what became the Apostles' Creed that we just recited together and that we just spent several months teaching through. This is a creedal statement. It's as if Paul breaks into worship with this confession, this poem, this song, and he tells, he recites, he recounts, he reminds himself of the story of the gospel. This is the thing I think Peter says that the prophets of old searched and inquired carefully for and that angels long to look at. One of my favorite little passages, 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 10 through 12. Peter says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that which was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they, that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news of the Holy Spirit who sent them from heaven. And into these things, angels longed to look. This is a mystery, the mystery of godliness, the things that angels desire they want to even look at. One of my, I'm not going to, I was thinking about reading this whole passage, but I want to get out of here soon so the kids can go. One of my favorite stories passages in the New Testament is in Revelation 5, suiting again for tonight. There's this scene where John is in the throne room, 
And he's seeing these creatures and these elders and, and all this stuff, angels, tens of thousands of angels. And he sees this scroll with these mysteries in it. It's sealed and it can't be opened. See the, the analogy there? There's a mystery that can't be opened. And when he sees the scroll that can't be opened, he begins to weep and cry because there's this mystery in the right hand of the Father and nobody can open it. And an angel comes to him and says, don't weep. We found one who's worthy. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy and he can open the scroll. And John looks and he sees, and what does he see? Does he see a lion? He sees a lamb as if it was slaughtered. He sees Jesus who is able to open the scroll and reveal the mysteries. That narrative then, these beasts, these creatures that have like eyes all around them and wings and they're crazy creatures, you should read it. They fall down and they worship. The 24 elders, the religious leaders throughout all of Jewish history, they fall down and they worship. And myriads of myriads of angels, when they see that the lion, who's the lamb who was slain, is worthy, what do they do? They fall down, they worship. Worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and power and praise. This mystery is great. And you, us, we as a church are called to hold it high and to hold it firm, and to proclaim it. We are the church of the living God, that lion who's the lamb. Paul says this is a great mystery. He was manifest in the flesh. Our God became flesh. The word there is incarnate. He took on flesh took it on, and he has not taken it off. Jesus is still has flesh. He's vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus conquered death. He is that slain lamb, but he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is conquered, and he is won. He died, but the grave could not hold him or contain him. He's seen by the angels. The host of heavens have seen his glory. They've longed to see it, and now they have seen it. Powers and principalities have been put on notice because there is a victorious king ruling. And he's been proclaimed among the nations. This message of this Messiah has gone and will continue to go to the ends of the earth and be proclaimed throughout all the world. He's been believed on in the world. The nations have and are continuing to respond to the gospel, hearing the good news. He is building his church 
from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He's accomplishing his will. And he's taken up in glory. Right now, he, that's God in flesh, is seated at the right hand of the Father of glory. And he forever lives to make intercession on our behalf. This, Paul says, is a great mystery. This is the mystery. You don't need to go looking for some fantastic story. This is the thing that should captivate your imagination, should captivate your interest, your desires. This is the thing that we hold firm and that we display. There's enough here to keep angels for eternity fixated on his glory. And we're so distracted by whatever is shiny in front of us. This is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. Church, my heart in this tonight is hopefully, I just want to provoke us. We have this great mystery. We hold this truth, this this gospel as a community. Let that fascinate us. Let that captivate our imagination, our thoughts, our efforts, our energy. Let that be what binds us and unites us. Let that be our motivation to go out. Let that be our motivation to come in. You are the household of God. You are the gathering of the living God the assembly of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of this true and better story. Let's live that way. Amen? Let's live as ambassadors to this true and better story. Worship team can come up and pray. Father, I just thank you that throughout all history, You have been on mission. That you weren't shocked or surprised, that you knew what you were doing. God, that you, in your power and your might, you created the heavens and the earth. You uphold all things. God, I pray that you would remind us again of this great mystery. You would remind us again of this true and better story. That we would be a people, a community that proclaims and declares and holds up the gospel as a more compelling narrative to everything that's going on around us. God, I pray that you would captivate us again, that you would fan into flame this picture and image of the God-man. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.